Welcome to After the Glory on Podclips. The elite athlete knows that his or her time in the spotlight and on a national stage will be no more than a small fraction of a lifetime. What has he done to prepare for the rest of his life? Is she ready to meet the challenges that lie ahead once her playing days are over? Two UCLA graduates from different generations and with an insider's knowledge introduce you to some of the greatest athletes of this or any generation as they talk about life after the glory. Lucy Singh is the founder of Resiliency, offering life and resilience coaching to athletes as they leave behind the field of play. Gary Stern is a Southern California consumer attorney and mediator and a veteran of multiple baseball fantasy camps where he was coached by some of the game's elite players who know what real life is all about once their playing days were over. And now, here's Lucy and Gary. Hello everyone, this is Gary Stern, co-creator and moderator of After the Glory. The episode you are about to hear featuring a conversation with former Major League pitcher Jerry Royce was recorded in uh, mid-September 2020, just a week or so prior to the sad and untimely death of uh, Jerry's former teammate, Major League ball player Jay Johnstone. Uh, Jerry refers uh, to uh, Jay, uh, and uh, it's clear that the two of them were longtime friends as well as teammates. Um, and uh, we send along our condolences to Jay's family and all those who knew and loved this wonderful former Major League ball player. And now, uh, After the Glory featuring Jerry Royce. Welcome everybody to another edition of After the Glory. Uh, today our guest is Jerry Royce, a Major League pitcher for 22 years from 1969 to 1990 which means he is one of only an estimated 29 players out of almost 20,000 who have ever played the game at the highest level to play in parts of four decades. He played for eight teams, most famously the Pirates uh, from Pittsburgh, 74 to 78, and the LA Dodgers from 1979 uh, to 1986, and his hometown St. Louis Cardinals where he started his career in 1969 and just in the last couple of years was inducted into the St. Louis Baseball Hall of Fame. He uh, pitched in games one and five of the 1981 World Series, which the Dodgers won. He pitched a no-hitter while with the Dodgers against the rival San Francisco Giants in Candlestick Park on June 27, 1980. Jerry had one of the most feared deliveries in the game, coming at the hitter at six foot five and 235, and I might add, looks just as lean and ready to pitch now at age 71 as when he retired in 1990 at the age of 41. And finally, having had success with the Dodgers, along with teammates like Jay Johnstone, Steve Garvey, Rick Monday, Steve Yeager, Jerry had and still has a legendary, sly sense of humor that endeared him to fans wherever baseball is played. In 2014, Jerry published his autobiography, Bring in the Right-Hander, one of the most well-written and entertaining books of a genre that you will ever read. And your autographed copy is yours. Just go to jerryroyce.com. Since retirement, Jerry's been a radio broadcaster, a pitching coach, and away from baseball, a recognized authority on pop and rock music, and a widely respected live-action baseball photographer, and of course, a popular fantasy camp coach. Married to the lovely Chantel, Jerry Royce is one of the most interesting people you'll ever meet, and I'm proud to call him my friend. Jerry, we're so thrilled to welcome you to After the Glory. 
Well, Gary, thank you. That's a, that's quite an intro. You worked pretty long. Well, it it, it was all there, uh, Luce. Well, Jerry, you know, we're so excited to have you. And our series of conversations with elite athletes began with Carl Erskine. And then we invited our three-time Super Bowl linebacker and UCLA Bruin, Roman Pfeiffer. So their journey at the top began young. And in the introduction of your book, you talk about moments on the mound, like in 1981, the World Series, when you looked around and thought, you know, you're living your dreams as a young boy. So Tell me more about that feeling that you had when you wanted to be a major league baseball player. Well, how far back, Lucy, do you want to go? Back to when I was a kid or absolutely that moment you just Please. talked about? Any and all. Well, there you go. Well, we'll start at the beginning. Uh, growing up in suburban St. Louis, uh, it was my older brother who took me out in the backyard, and it was love at first sight. Well, not my older brother, but playing baseball. And pretty soon, because of the baby boom around that time, there were a lot of other kids in the neighborhood, and there were a few empty lots where we could play. So that was what our childhood was like outside, playing baseball in the summer, and then football or whatever sports we played in the wintertime. Basketball, if the weather wasn't too cold, we played outside. So... We had the full array of sports in my childhood, which went from the mid-50s through the mid-60s. But I held on to the dream from the first time I played baseball that one day I was going to be a player. And, of course, millions of other kids growing up in St. Louis had that same dream with one caveat, and that's they wanted to play for the Cardinals. So in looking back on that, Millions of kids over that 10, maybe 12-year period having the dreams of playing in the major leagues for the Cardinals, I was one of the few that achieved it. So, you know, for me, that day of reckoning came the first day in the big leagues. I was sitting on the bench. This was in September of 1969, and somewhere along the game, probably about the fifth inning, I happened to look up. And I saw a section of seats that I had sat in as a high schooler just a couple of years before that. And it dawned on me what a change time could make in such a short period of time. There I sat watching the players on the bench and how they reacted to things. And just a couple of short years later, I was sitting on the bench and looking up in that area and having the experience from both sides. And it was at that point that I realized just how fortunate I was. To get to that point, what role did formal education play in your life leading up to your 1990 MLB debut, Uh, particularly the choice of pro baseball or a college scholarship, uh, any military experience that that you had and how it affected your life? Uh, Take us through that that thought process in those couple years leading up to the actual debut. Well, in high school... I had a a concern of getting to college. Uh, I had two brothers, one older, one younger, and the older brother, even though mom and dad budgeted for him to go through college, it always costs more, and uh, there's just so much you can make to replace the funds that have been spent. So with my younger brother, just a year and a half, two years of school behind me, they realized just how tough it was going to be, getting both of us through college. So uh, my mom pulled me aside one day and said, you know, we really need you to help out here with the scholarship. And 
it was that I would already planned this though was uh, baseball was going to be my life even though high school counselors just kind of said you know that's good and well Jerry but you're going to need a college education just in case that doesn't work out so I said okay that makes sense so that was my secondary plan and my way to get to college the easiest way was with a scholarship either through academics or through basketball they were giving out more basketball scholarships than they were baseball as well as the, the, the academic scholarships you can add that to the pack too so from the time I was a sophomore in high school my goal was to either get to college or to sign a baseball contract and I had already signed a letter of intent to Southern Illinois University to play baseball and basketball so that alleviated the fears of my parents and it also set me on track well at least for two weeks because I talked to the Cardinals uh, after they drafted me in the second round and they made an offer that I thought was fair so I signed a baseball contract and that set aside college uh, even though I spent uh, the 67 and 68 at SIU and when I got out I joined the AA club now in double-A ball, I realized I was only going to play half a season, and playing half seasons is not going to make it to the big leagues. So I enlisted in the Army Reserve and was fortunate that when I went into basic training, it was in the off-season, so it didn't disrupt any baseball season that I had. But one thing it did do is push college into the background. But it was a decision I had to make because without without uh, a college deferment I would have been drafted probably like you and so many of our generation and two years would have been taken out of my life so uh, I made the logical decision uh, with the Army Reserve and still tried to uh, do school one term at a time in the off season at Central Missouri State so that was the plan until I got to the big leagues and the Cardinals when I decided to stay in St. Louis full time that was the transition from the time I was in the early minor leagues through um, coming up in the big leagues in the middle of 1970. Wow, Jerry, that's just incredible. And before we go to break, why don't you tell us a couple of interests and activities that you had outside of baseball during your career? Uh, well, there wasn't really a whole lot to do because I had the Army duty, which was weekends and then a two-week summer camp. Uh, but the other activities uh, involved going to school or finding a way to get a term in before it was time to go to spring training. So there really wasn't a whole lot of time uh, spent on the activities uh, like I do now when, you know, I'm retired. So uh, that, my concern at that point was just trying to stay in the major leagues, complete my Army duty, and try to go to school, which, um, you yeah, know, that was enough activity for a couple of years. And, and Jerry, as we go to break, think about this when we come back. In your book, you mentioned that you learned from a number of people, but especially the legendary Willie Stargell, uh, a mantra that you carried with you throughout your career. Work hard and play just as hard. When we come back, we will talk about Jerry Royce, the guy who played as hard as he worked. Since 1980, Woodland Hills lawyer Gary Stern has been known as a lawyer's lawyer, passionate about his clients and equally passionate about bringing honor, dignity, and respect to the legal profession. 
Gary Stern represents folks seriously injured because of healthcare negligence, defective and dangerous products and property, neglect in long-term care facilities, and careless operation of cars and trucks. He has successfully resolved hundreds of cases for his clients, providing them with the financial help they needed during trying times. Gary Stern is a member of the prestigious National Trial Lawyers Top 100, active with consumer attorneys of Los Angeles and California, and is admitted to the bar of the Supreme Court of the United States. And most important, I am proud to call him dad. You can reach Gary Stern at 818-710-2717 or visit his website at www.sternlaw.org. Thinking about a new or used car? Think Infinity of Thousand Oaks. We've been serving Thousand Oaks in Southern California for years. We have new, used, and certified pre-owned Infinity vehicles available now with many special offers. There's something for everyone. Infinity of Thousand Oaks is your home for the best deals on Infinity cars. With the COVID pandemic, we offer contactless sales. Call our sales office at 805-262-7442 or visit infinityofthousandoaks.com. Pick out a vehicle and we'll deliver it to your home or office with all the paperwork done with the power of the internet. Our award-winning sales and service team is waiting to give you the best service in buying a vehicle you've ever had. Call us today at 805-262-7442 and make an appointment for your new 2020 Infinity or visit our website at infinityofthousandoaks.com. Welcome to After the Glory on Podclips. Here's Lucy and Gary. We're back with Jerry Royce. And uh, Jerry, I mentioned uh, that... uh, Uh, the mantra that you live by according to your book and I want to follow up on that Uh, as you know this is a show not about the balls and strikes and the and the uh, what happened between the lines but what happened outside the lines and after Um, talk a little about um, the the things that that uh, that that defined you as a person with your teammates over your 22-year career uh, including uh, the sort of the broadening of your own interests and in things outside of baseball as you went through your career? Well, there, there's a romance with pe- that people have with baseball and some players in that they identify a player with a particular club. So, For instance, if you think of Stan Musico, you can't help but think of the Cardinals. You think of Willie Mays, you think of the Giants, not the Mets. If you think of Sandy Koufax, you think of the Dodgers. Well, it doesn't happen that way to everybody who plays the game. And for most of us who had an extensive career, it meant having to change addresses a couple of times and playing for some different clubs. Now, there's an advantage to that as well because you meet so many different people. And I was blessed with a with a chance to be around the illuminaries, the the players who played in the World Series with the Cardinals in 67 and 68 when I came up in 69. Then I went to Houston for a couple of years, and there were some great ball players there as well, but it was a team that really didn't have a postseason history. But when I got to Pittsburgh, it was a different story altogether. So I lived in the Midwest, I lived in the Southwest, and now I was heading to the Northeast something entirely different and something that I wouldn't have chosen to do had it been my choice. But going to Pittsburgh, it was a different kind of group. 
and it was a team that was put together in the 60s by Roberto Clemente. Uh, in that, he was the team leader, but he didn't do it by himself because he had the help of Willie Stargell. And between Stargell and Clemente, they defined the team and formed it into a, a, a fun, loving kind of group that played hard before the ball game and then played equally hard once the game began. And it became sort of a rallying cry. We come in here, we play. Yeah, we'll have our fun, but we'll transition at about 6 o'clock, 6.15 and get ourselves game ready and go out there and win. And for most part, in the years that I was with Pittsburgh, that's 1974 to early 1979, uh, that's the approach that they had, and all of that was led by Willie Stargell. But he kept it as simple as he possibly could. Uh, play hard, and then go on the field and play just as hard. Work hard and play hard equally. And that's the way the team approached, and that's how they were to develop a winning attitude around that ball club during those years. I love it. That sounds like a mantra that all of us can, you know, live by. So, Jerry, with that being said, at any point during your baseball career, did you consciously think about what you would do after your playing days were over? Well, when I was in college, uh, this is at Central Missouri State, my intent was to be a, a math teacher. And I think I had needed five courses, advanced courses in math, before I graduated. I got to the third one, and I'm in calculus, and uh, it was getting a bit dry. And then I noticed that I was asked by a former colleague back in high school who was attending school at Central Missouri State, and he says, you know, I need some help on the basketball broadcast. Uh, Central Missouri at the time, and this is hard to believe, in the, in the late 60s, they had a 50,000-watt FM station and they had a one-camera cable for local television. So he said, we're doing basketball games here. I'd like to have you come on and help me out. Well, once I got behind the mic, it didn't take long for me to say, math is great, but this is a whole lot more fun. So that was when my broadcasting career was born, and I kept it in mind the whole time that I played throughout the major leagues thinking that once I retired, there would be an opportunity somewhere behind the mic for me. Jerry, let me ask you, as you uh, went through your career, uh, it became apparent that you were going to be one of the rare ones with a long uh, career that very few can match. Uh, I, my sense is baseball is really the only sport where there's a pervasive day-to-day -day and, and all-day-long connection with so many others who are your teammates. You basically live with these fellows for well over half a year. Can you talk about the personalities, the development uh, of off-the-field friendships and instances where personalities clash and, and how you deal with it as you become a veteran ball player? And if I may add well, here, a generational yeah. gap. Our podcast here may also have you know that experience too. There are all kinds of situations occur in a clubhouse and you're going to meet all kinds of different people. Again, I just look at it as an advantage playing for eight different clubs as opposed to spending the bulk of my career with one team. Yeah, there are advantages that way, but the advantages with playing with so many different people in so many different locations really spreads out the opportunity 
to learn from other people and to learn how to deal uh, with all kinds of personalities. Yeah, sure, there were some bad apples in the clubhouse because um, they're people and they're not necessarily happy all of the time. Uh, I, you know, it, one, one thing I've learned is that one way to keep everybody happy is by winning. And when you're on a team that doesn't win, well, you, there's some attitudes that change just a little bit. And uh, some guys don't push quite as hard as the other guys. They drive to succeed. So uh, one has to learn in dealing with the day-to-day situations that you have in the clubhouse with different people. Uh, guys who were leaders in the clubhouse were able to pull uh, the people apart and say, look, we got to get this together here. You're not pulling your weight, and we need you out there in the field if we're going to succeed. Yeah, we may not get to the postseason, but what we can do here is build a foundation so that the future, next year, for instance, we can have some new people come in, and that will make us better. Uh, it was that positive outlook that I used to see with a lot of people that, uh, that made the difference, and I more or less kept that attitude myself. Um, not so much behind the scenes in talking to people, but in the day-to-day work efforts that I put out there. You still have to do the work, get through today, and you'll deal with tomorrow when the time comes. As we go to break, Jerry, uh, there was a, a, there's a great story that you tell about sort of the generation gap of players. Um, a, a player who comes up to the plate and he uh, is adjusting his uh, batting gloves five or six times, gets in the box, gets out, adjusts his gloves, gets out, and at some point you're on the mound and you've had enough. Can you pick up the story? That was Tito Fuentes when he went over to the Tigers, and this happened in spring training in the 70s. And Tito was one of those guys that, uh, you know, liked to wear the batting gloves, the wristbands. Only with Detroit, he added a headband, and he had these ticks before he went to the plate, and he ended the whole procedure by tapping the bat he held the barrel and tapped the bat on the plate and it flipped back into his hands and then he was ready to go well now he happened to add all of these other things particularly with the headband and on a warm day in spring training you know come on Tito let's go Uh, but Tito made the mistake after doing all of this uh, after swinging at a pitch now he had to dust himself off and then go through the whole procedure with the gloves the wristbands the headband and and taking a deep breath and then he finally looked out at me and signaled come on let's go and that was just too much for me i said okay we're gonna go and i threw one over his head and i said don't ever do that again (laughs) and while he was dusting himself off this time with picking up the helmet in one area and the bat another i got my point across the interesting thing is keto after that at bat and for the rest of the game and most likely Every time that I faced him after that, he didn't adjust his wristbands or his batting gloves or his or his uh, hat band. He just got in there and hit. So the, uh, the adjustment was made, and it was made quickly. Sounds like a generation gap solved. Lucy? Jerry, I love that story. So when we return, let's talk about your last year, 1990, the year I was born. Life Coaching for Athletes is here to help. Coach Lucy is a certified life coach focused on working with athlete-minded people in finding and pursuing success in life outside of sports. 
She serves as an accountability partner and offers different perspectives when her clients are facing big challenges and decisions. Follow Resiliency on Instagram at Resiliency, that's R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-T-S-E-E underscore coaching for more information. As a co-host of After the Glory, Coach Lucy is excited to share her expertise in working with athletes and looks forward to connecting with all you listeners to learn more of your stories as well. Hello, this is Dean, third-generation owner of Sarah Leonard Fine Jewelers. We are located near UCLA in the heart of Westwood Village, where we have been since 1946. For 74 years, my family has stood for the highest standards of knowledge and integrity and are proud members of the prestigious American Gem Society. But it is our personal touch that truly makes us a cut above. Client relationships last for decades and generations. With six UCLA alumni, the family has supported UCLA for decades, including the famous Sarah Leonard Jewelers Watch Giveaway. For diamonds and colored gems, designer collections and estate jewelry, watches, custom design, and gorgeous gifts starting under $100, it's all here at Sarah Leonard Fine Jewelers. Mention the code GLORY and get 20% off your first purchase, plus a 10% UCLA discount on all future purchases. Call 310-208-3131 today for your appointment or visit us at sarahleonardjewelers.com. Free parking available. Again, call 310-208-3131, use the code GLORY and experience the Sarah Leonard difference for yourself. Welcome to After the Glory on Podclips. Here's Lucy and Gary. This is After the Glory, and Gary and Lucy here with Jerry Royce. Jerry, tell us about 1990, your last year, and, you know, how it came about and what you were thinking then. Well, in 1989, I had a rough end to the season in Milwaukee. Spent um, some time on the disabled list and never really came on track. And the final tally on my record was 1-5. and five. And when you're 40 years old, your record is one in five and you don't do well, well, teams tend to look for somebody younger and most likely cheaper. So I had a difficult time finding a job, but fortunately for me, the relationship I had with the White Sox and their manager, Jeff Torborg, led to an invitation to spring training. Jeff pulled me aside and he says, I don't know how many innings I can give you, but I can give you a lot of time in beat games if that's okay. And, of course, I was just looking for a chance to show what I could do, uh, even though I knew that I wasn't being counted on for the White Sox in 1990. So I was released by the White Sox, as they said they probably would, and latched on with Houston. And the best that Houston could offer me was a chance to pitch in double-A ball. So imagine a 40-year-old man pitching in double-A ball. I was older than the pitching coach and the same age as the manager. And the kids that were down there were second generation. In some cases, they were 19 and 20 years old, um, and they could have been young enough to be my son. So I did well in double-A, went to triple-A, and didn't do quite so well, and ultimately I got released. So here I am. It's at the end of May, and I'm pitching in Pasadena in Sunday baseball. And uh, it was a scout Ed Roebuck, who was with the Pirates, that liked what he saw and recommended me to Pittsburgh uh, to give a look. So when the Pirates came in in July, I threw a bullpen, and it must have been a good one because they signed me to a AAA contract and sent me to their AAA club in Buffalo. I pitched well enough in Buffalo to get an invitation at the end of the season to join the ball club. So that, um, that was quite a rocky road. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. 
but I was fortunate in that I announced my retirement and Jim Leland understanding uh, just how important this was, not only to him, but to all players, uh, was kind enough to invite me to pitch the final game of the season after the Pirates had already clinched the National League East. So I was one of those rare players that got to finish their career on a high point, walking off the mound to a standing ovation of better than 30,000 people who appreciated the work that I did a whole generation ago with their pirates. So uh, that was truly a walk-off kind of gift that very few people are honored to have. Jerry, we, we've heard from uh, the athletes we've talked to, starting with, uh, with Carl, uh, how difficult it is often to take the uniform off. And not so much difficult, but the idea that sort of you're going to have to tear the uniform off me. Um, in that last year, it sounds like you became at peace with the uh, the ending of your career. Um, in the year or two afterwards, what did you miss most about the game on the field? Well, the everydayness of it. The fact that you got to the ballpark and the schedule, you knew what your schedule was going to be, particularly for me as a starting pitcher. Uh, I knew it was what day I was going to do the weights, what day I was going, what kind of running I was going to do, and what kind of throwing I was going to do, all in an effort to prepare for my next start. Uh, the travel part of it didn't miss quite that much, but it was the everydayness and the competition of preparing for 30 to 35 starts uh, for the year. That's the part I missed the most. And the other thing that I think people sometimes forget in baseball, really no less than any other uh, sport, whether big contact of football or basketball, and that's health. You had to have stayed remarkably healthy over a 22-year career doing something that's just not anatomically natural, throwing a baseball to major league hitters. Can you talk about that price for you and how you would advise young athletes in terms of that price relative to the, uh, the, the wear and tear on your body? Yeah, that's uh, when I was in high school. The coach, the coach told me you're going to have to make a lot of sacrifices if you're going to get to the top. And, uh, of course, I said I'm willing to do any of those sacrifices, not knowing what they were going to be. Uh, of course, there were a lot of other top uh, high school athletes when I was playing, and they signed professional contracts, but it was injuries that stopped them. Sometimes it was something you couldn't help maybe an arm injury, an elbow, a back, a knee, and you can't quite recover from it. Well, it's a, it's competitive professionally, and, there, and it always seems that a team is looking for someone younger and cheaper. And when they find that person, then you get cast aside, or they move you to another organization to see if um, you have something left. So that was really the case that I would see time and again while making my way through um, professional baseball. Fortunately for me, I never went on the disabled list until I was 34 years old. So that meant that I had 15 different seasons in baseball before injury took me out of play. Um, but subsequently, I did pay the price. Two elbow surgeries and two surgeries on my heels a knee replacement and a back uh, surgery. So all of these things, they all pay a price, though 
even though I'm 71 years old, these are things that are commonplace with people my age. I can't help but think that the activity that I did for so many years helped lead to some of these problems. But the big question is, and before you ask it, let me answer it, is would you do it all over again? And it's a resounding, hell yes. I hear you loud and clear, Jared. And, and related to that, uh, I think more related than maybe we acknowledge, and, and before we go to break, if you just take a minute or two to talk about this, family life, uh, and not so much personally, but just generally yourself and all of your teammates, all of the travel must have an effect on family life, and different players will deal with it in different ways. Uh, how, how was it for you? Well, if I think back to a given year, and um, you, you were to name a particular year in the 22 that I played and say, and give me that year, what I'd have to do is take a look at the baseball schedule and also take a look at where and when I was pitching, and I could give you some kind of idea of what I was thinking at that time. Whereas most people who work for a living and don't do a whole lot of travel can remember a particular summer vacation or a July 4th holiday or some other memorable family event uh, that I can't relate to because I didn't get those traditional kind of vacations. And that's the price that you have to pay. So, Jerry, that I'm glad that you shared about that family life as, you know, it's not what the general population gets access to. So thank you for being so transparent about that. Uh, when we're back from break, I, I'd like for us to talk a little more and wrap up this episode by, you know, thinking about life outside of baseball and the well-established careers that you've made in music and radio and really what you learned from baseball that led you to lead successful careers in other industries. Have you ever wanted to experience the thrill of playing spring training baseball with some of the game's legends? At LED ABC, we believe you should be able to live your dream of being a pro baseball player, and now you can. The LED ABC Adult Baseball Camp is an independently owned and operated fantasy camp for men and women over the age of 30. As an independent camp, you can be a fan of any team from any city and you'll feel right at home with us. Our next camp is scheduled for November 7th through the 13th, 2021, and will be held at the historic Dodger Town Complex in Vero Beach, Florida, now known as the Jackie Robinson Training Complex. You'll play ball all week long on the best practice fields in the nation. You'll enjoy use of state-of-the-art facilities, and you'll be pampered and cared for just like a major leaguer. We invite you to visit our website and sign up for our November 2021 camp. Just go to www.ladabc.com. That's ladabc.com. Welcome to After the Glory on Podclips. Here's Lucy and Gary. We're back with uh, Jerry Royce on After the Glory. Jerry, as we wrap up uh, this episode, one of the things that's most fascinating about your life since retirement in 1990 is it's sort of the renaissance things you've done with it, the, the national reputation as a sports photographer. Uh, getting involved in music and writing a, or co-authoring a book, in addition to baseball broadcasting both at the major league level uh, and, and at AAA. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to the various passions that you have been following since, uh, since 1990? We've covered broadcasting just a little bit. That goes back to college. But I spent three years at ESPN beginning in 1991, then moved to Las Vegas where I did some minor league games on the radio and some games with Baseball Night in America. That was the short-lived baseball 
presentation by the networks for a couple of years. Then I did three years of TV with the Angels, uh, did some more broadcasting here in Las Vegas before I coached for five years, and then joined the Dodgers on a limited number of uh, radio broadcasts with Rick Monday from 2006 to 2008. And since then, uh, for me, it, it, it's just a, it's a passion, it's a love of the game, and it gives me a chance to talk about some of the experiences I have and mix them in with a contemporary game going on, something that uh, people throughout the country remember with their favorite broadcasters who, who brought them major league games every day. It was a matter of being welcome into someone's house or someone's car or sitting out on the porch with somebody listening to a ball game uh, the way that I remember it when I was a kid. So, you know, for me, that was uh, that was just a passion, and it was something that I enjoyed doing. But there were other things as well that interested me. One was photography. Now, in 1988, before the season, uh, I wasn't certain that I was going to make the White Sox team. And I told myself before the year that if I do this, I'm going to buy a camera and take pictures of ballparks that I happen to visit. And then it occurred to me, why didn't I do this years before? Because this sounds like a perfect way uh, to keep some of those memories. Well, I learned how to do this by talking to a number of sports photographers around Dodger Stadium, as well as some of the other ballparks throughout the major leagues. And I took the tips that I've got from the professionals and was able to save a number of images of the ballparks that no longer exist. The music part, well, that was always something that was in the background growing up. And I remember the names of the songs. I remember the artists. And then one day I just said, you know, I'm curious about this. This was after I wrote my book. And I said, let's see if I can discover how this hit came into be. And so I did maybe three or four dozen of those and posted them on my website about the different hits that... Uh, hit the airwaves from the mid fifties through the through the sixties. So they still sit there on my website for anybody who wants to read them. Uh, but now, as someone who's retired, there's a number of different projects that I choose and say, you know, let's go ahead and explore this and see what we can do. So that's what I do day to day uh, as I live now. Well, Jerry, let me just say this, uh, and and of course. You're being modest because the, the work you do in each of those fields of photography and music is really quite phenomenal and professional. Uh, but I, I want to just say what, uh, what I know you may be reluctant to say, which is that uh, your years with Rick Monday on the Dodger broadcast were as much fun as anything I can remember. And I, um, I for one, objected at the time, and I still object that you're not there. You don't have to respond. It's just a personal opinion on my part. Uh, Jerry Royce, you, you are an incredible individual with a, a marvelous life to talk about. We didn't really get into all the humor that happened because I, I think we got to save something for the book. It's called Bring in the Right-Hander by Jerry Royce, and it, uh, uh, you can obtain it through jerryroyce.com. Lucy? That wraps up this episode for After the Glory. Thank you so much, Jerry, for joining us today. And I also like to thank Mark Allen, our producer, as well as Daryl Wayne, our sound engineer. Thank you all for listening. We will talk to you next time.